Welcome to the Crossroads Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Do it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke. We're going to be in Luke. We have been in Luke for a while. We're going to end up at Luke chapter 16, verse 18. But we are in part three of this this series, Christmas at Crossroads, A Christmas Carol. And today I get to introduce you to another character in Dickinson's story that really is a catalyst to this story that I think is going to motivate us. What we are trying to figure out this Christmas season is just one simple answer. Because we believe that if we ask the right questions, then we will seek the right answers. Most of us have a problem because we ask the wrong questions. And here's the way we put it. The questions that you ask will determine the answers you seek. So if you're not asking the right questions, you're never going to get to the right answer. And so we want to help you. We are all asking some of the same questions. No, it's not the question that everybody's been asked right now. What do you want for Christmas? We've tweaked it. What do you want Jesus to do in your life? It comes from the biblical account of Jesus encountering the two blind men who come to him wanting to be healed, and the disciples think that he's a distraction, and Jesus permits him to come, and he goes up to this blind man, and he literally asks him this one question, what is it you want me to do? And during that time, obviously, they say, to heal me or to give me sight. And so the question is, what is it that we would say that we want Jesus to do in our life? So if the questions that we ask will determine the answers that we seek, then here's the second thing that we talked about last week. And the desires of your heart will determine what you chase in this life. So not only do the questions that you ask usually determine the answers that you're going to seek, but the desires that you have in your heart are going to be what dictates the things that you chase in this thing called life. So can I introduce you to another character in this amazing story called A Christmas Carol named Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley was Ebenezer Scrooge's right-hand man. They were partners together in this business, and he shows up, and he's going to be the guide that takes Ebenezer to see these three different ghosts of Christmas. But Jacob Marley shows up, and he changes everything because of what he shows up with. See, Jacob was Scrooge's partner, and they had built great wealth for themselves. And now, please don't mishear me. I do not believe in ghosts. This is a story, okay? But he shows up to talk to Scrooge to try to help him to move forward because Jacob Marley realizes what Scrooge doesn't know. Here's the central theme of the story. Are you ready? Your choices have consequences. Your choices have consequences. You say, well, how do you know it? Well, see, Jacob Marley shows up, and Scrooge hears him before he gets there. And he has these chains that are wrapped all around him. And the word that's used is fettered. And Scrooge asks him this question, how did you become so fettered? And he shows up shaking. And he shows up with these chains. And he realizes that he has done something to become bondage. He's done something that all of a sudden he had grabbed all these things in life and all these things in life that he thought that he wanted end up only being shackles and bondage to what really mattered. In fact, can I read for you a quote out of the story of Christmas Carol? 
Here's the way Jacob Marley responded to Scrooge's question of how did you become so fettered? I wear the chains I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link, yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and on my own free will, I wear it. I think if we were to really be honest today, one of our second parts of our purpose, our purpose at Crossroads is to be a life-giving church in our community. How do we do that? We want to help people know God. The second thing, we want them to find freedom. Third, discover their purpose. Lastly, and go make a difference. But I tell people in growth track all the time, the majority of people at Crossroads are all in that second step. Like we have discovered our purpose and we're making a difference and we're trying every day to know God, but where we live the most is trying to find freedom. Like it's amazing to me that we live in one of the greatest countries, I believe the greatest country, but I'm trying not to be that, you know, over-the-top American, even though I am, that has all the freedom in the world, but yet we all live in bondage. In fact, I will tell you an amazing concept that's in God's word. It's one of the central themes of God's word. God's people, from the very beginning, were born into this world for a relationship with him. We call it the Garden of Eden, right? Where there was no sin, no death, no struggle, complete freedom. So much freedom that God himself would come down during the heat of the day and spend time with Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, here comes a serpent, right? What's the serpent want to do? He wants immediately to get them to make a choice it's going to put them in bondage. And all of a sudden, Eve eats of an apple. We don't know if it was an actual apple, but eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that he said not to do. And next thing you know, God comes down and he asks this question, why do you hide yourself from me? And they said, because we were naked, which they thought was a real good answer. In which God replied, who told you you were naked? And that's the first time the word dope showed up in God's word. Because they were like, oh, it caught me. And from that moment, we've been in shackles. It shows up how God gave his people a promised land, but they forfeited it. End up being in Egypt, in captivity. And God calls somebody that has a speech impediment that stutters named Moses to go to the Pharaoh to let his people go. See, the whole central theme of God's word is I don't want my people to be captive. I want them to live in freedom. But do you know what we do on a regular basis? We strap ourselves to chains and consequences of our choices. You say, Mickey, prove it to me. Okay. What do you really want Jesus to do in your life? Does it have something to do with a consequence that you feel like you're living with? See, I want us today to look at God's word and to see a very real story. It's a parable, but to see a real story that's very similar to this Christmas carol. Because I believe as we're trying to answer that question, what is it we want Jesus to do in our lives, we have a big struggle in our soul. The reality is, is that we don't know what we want until we want it, 
And usually when we want it, it's too late to change that craving. That's the reason why we find ourselves in debt that we don't need to be in. We find ourselves in situations that we don't need to be in. We find ourselves in relationships that we don't need to be in. We find ourselves with consequences in our life that we, we wake up one day and we go, I don't even know how I got here. And you got there the same way everybody gets there. One decision at a time, one day at a time, and all of a sudden you are exactly where you have chosen to be. And in your own free will, through the choices that you've made, you have shackled yourself to so many different things that you want to run and live life more abundantly, but you know it's real hard when you're carrying these heavy chains. Well, there's an amazing biblical account that's a parable. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and preface this parable before I get into it. This is the only time in God's word that in a parable, now listen to what a parable is. A parable is a story that Jesus used to teach a biblical truth. So it doesn't mean that it's verbatim like that's how it is. He's using a parable, an analogy, to help you understand a biblical truth. In this parable, you're going to see a conversation that is taking place between somebody that is in hell and somebody that is in heaven. I do not believe that what this is teaching is the doctrine that you, like, you're going to be able to see each other. That was not the point of this parable. Jesus was trying to get them to understand. Nowhere in God's word does it have this concept of this chasm and like people in hell are going to be looking up to people in heaven and people in heaven are going to be looking down to people in hell. That does not exist in God's word. So I just want to make sure you know that before we dive into this because I don't want you to get confused. But if you have your Bibles or if you're on your phone or a tablet, turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, this is a parable. The first thing that a lot of us think about is, Lazarus, is that the guy he raised from the dead? This is Lazarus, just a fictitious character. He just used the name. He just named him. He's a poor man named Lazarus. Why does he name him? Because he wants you to try to identify him. Notice he said there was a rich man. He doesn't give it a personal name. It's a concept of people that, just, that are rich, that have all their needs met. But he tries to get a personal name with the poor man because he's wanting you to put a face with who it is. See, a lot of times we can be detached from people that are in needs because we don't really know them personally. This holiday season, I've had some of you, and we want you to continue to do this, that you know somebody personally that may need some assistance. And it's amazing how more involved you get when you have a personal attachment to them. All of a sudden, it's not just some random guy that you don't know off of the Shallowford exit with a sign saying, need some money, hungry and homeless. Because you can just drive by those. But when it's a friend or a family member, all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, I gotta do something about this. That's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's trying to get you to recognize that this is an actual person in this parable. So let's pick it up, you ready? Verse 20. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Some people would say it would be leprosy. We're not real sure. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, let me again teach you a little biblical truth. We live in America where we have domesticated animals. So we think, oh, isn't that sweet? So there it is, pastor. Even in God's word. See, you're like anti-animals. I'm not anti-animals. But this is not domesticated dogs like, hey, sit, boo-boo, sit, and this is great, and he's taking care of my sores. This aspect that's going on is during biblical times, there would be wild dogs that ran the streets. And you'd be fearful of them. And they would come up and could lick your swords or do stuff. It's not licking like soothing to help. It's more of like gnawing at it because they're hungry. And you'd be frightened and you'd be feared and you'd be trying to shoo them away. So he's trying to give you a concept of what's really going on. So these dogs that are wild, that are running the street, are coming up and they're nibbling at him. They're biting at him. It's not soothing his sores. They're nibbling, licking, and trying to get something from him. And let's continue. We are in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and no one can cross from there to us. Now, again, this is a parable I would not take this to start defining my doctrine. I do not believe, because nowhere else in God's word does he talk about this chasm as far as being able to communicate back and forth. He's trying to teach a biblical truth. The biblical truth that he's trying to teach is very simple. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And depending on the choices that you make will determine where you're gonna spend life. And some people may think that this life and everything they've got is so great and so grand that, woo, this is the best thing ever. But because of what they do with Jesus, when it's all said and done, they're going to do anything to retrace their steps. See, it's, it's what Marley did with Ebenezer Scrooge. See, the whole story of, of the Christmas carol is built around this aspect that your choices have consequences. And the great part about this story is that as long as you have breath, you can change the end. But most people, and this is what blows me away, will hear the gospel, will hear about a real place called heaven, and they love that. They'll hear about a real place called hell, and they say, we don't need to talk about that anymore. You know, God doesn't send people to hell. You're right. God does not send people to hell. People's choices and what they choose to do with Jesus determines whether or not they go to hell. Jesus wants everybody to have a place at a mansion with streets of gold and to have heaven. But despite what he wants, he gives us a free choice to decide what we're going to shackle ourselves with. And without a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? No freedom, but eternal damnation. And so Marley starts showing Scrooge these different images to let him know that the choices he are making and what it's resulting in his life. Now, I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. I believe wholeheartedly it is what I am consumed with the most right now. To a flaw, 
like I borderline am, am about a basket case because mentally I can't, I literally think about this 24-7. My wife is sitting over here already going, I know what he's going to say. I am consumed right now with systems and structures. Like what is our purpose? What is God calling us to do? And what is our systems and structures to make sure that happens? I'm talking about like, like pray for our staff that they will be patient with the pastor because I have all this stuff in my head and sometimes the way it comes out of my mouth is, is I'm like, that's, that, that's not, that, that didn't translate very well. I know what I was trying to say, it just didn't. And it's one of those things that, praise the Lord, my wife is helping me through this along with some other people. But here's the reason why I'm so consumed with it. The structures and the systems that you have in your life are set up to create exactly what you have in your life right now. Like everything that you have in your life right now is exactly the way your life is set up and what it's to produce. I'll give you an example. Well, I, I want some things. And because I want some things, I work a lot. And because I work a lot, I don't have as much time as I used to have. And because I don't have the time that I used to have, then I have to dictate who gets my time. So when you're sitting here going, wow, it's the holidays. I love the holidays because it gives me a breath to be able to spend time with my family. What the reality is, is you need to make your family a bigger priority because they're there the other 365 days of the year. You don't need Christmas to come around to get you to stop. But see, you've set yourself up with the systems that you have. Because of the things that you want, you got to work so much to make a certain amount of money to pay for the stuff that you want just for you to get it, to realize, I don't even know if I want this, but hey, we've got it, so now I don't know what to do with it. We call it buyer's remorse, and there's no greater salesman to yourself than yourself, right? I mean, I can talk myself into stuff in a heartbeat. I go, TJ Maxx, somebody needs to punch them in the face. Why would you put chocolate-covered popcorn at the end of every register aisle? They know I can't say no to that. Like, I walk through there, I'd be like, I've been watching myself and not trying to eat, and I say, I'm like, oh, my, mm, I want that. Myself says, and you deserve it. I'm like, by golly, yes, I do deserve it. Next thing you know, I've eaten a whole bag. Like, I will talk myself into stuff so quickly, it is crazy. Like, I don't need anybody to sell me on something. The systems and the structures I have in my life, all I got to do is get numero uno to say yes, and guess what? We go get it. Hey, what do you want? See, you're laughing because I just, like, it ain't just me, right? It's you too. And right now you're like, whew, so I'm human. Yeah, you're human. We will sell ourselves on stuff. So that's the reason why we got to answer this, what do you want? And not just what do you want, but what do you want Jesus to do in your life? I'll give you some other examples. Pornography. You have these desires, men and women, and all of a sudden you start looking at stuff you don't need to look at, which turns around and makes you devalue the opposite sex. So all of a sudden, rather than lifting them up and putting them on a pedestal and to giving them worth, now they begin something for you to use only for your own guilty pleasure. And it all started, why? Because you were looking at stuff you didn't need to look at. And you were devaluing people. 
and you were devaluing the opposite sex in particular, and all of a sudden now when you look at people, you no longer look at them for what they are, you look at them for what they could offer you. See, we, we work too much and become workaholics. We're over-sexualized by the things that we look at. And we have these desires in our hearts. And because of what the desires in our hearts, these are the things that we chase. That is the story of Scrooge. He had these desires in his heart, and so he chased these things. It's also the study or the, uh, the aspect of Jewish people. I mentioned this last week briefly. But the cycle of idolatry is amazing in God's word. The Jewish people, God's number one. They're being blessed. Here's the promised land. All of a sudden, God's not enough. They forget the first commandment. Don't put any other gods before me. And they start worshiping a golden calf. They start questioning the promised land. They start questioning the journey. Next thing you know, they make something else to be the idol. And all of a sudden, when they made something else to be the idol, guess what? Here comes captivity. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in captivity. They find themselves in chains. And all of a sudden, they got to go, you know what? I got to do something to unlock these chains. And it's called repentance. And they would repent and put God back in his rightful place. And then God would bless them. And it's like, woohoo, we got it. And all of a sudden, they go, you know, but he's not enough. And then here we go. And we'd make something else. See, idolatry is the seed that most people sow that leads to captivity. So when I'm asking you what you want, can I ask you another question? What's the number one thing in your life? What do you spend the most time thinking about? What do you spend the most time pursuing? If I took you back into your life and I had the ability, which I think would be really cool because you guys have some amazing stories, and to take you on a journey to all the things, what would we see? Now, some of you are sitting out there going, boy, I am so glad you don't have that. Because there are things in my past that, I'll be honest with you, I'm trying to forget them, and I sure don't want you to remember them. And you show up in chains. Can I tell you what happens with the, the rich man? Can we finish the parable? Here's what he realizes. After he realizes that there's nothing he can do, listen to what he says. Here's what he wants. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. He's talking about Lazarus. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither they will be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. Are you ready for this? He's saying, if you don't listen to his word now, you're not going to listen even if they raise somebody from the dead. And Jesus died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. See, the reason why people don't accept Jesus for who he is, the reason why we struggle with this thing called faith, the reason why we don't accept his death and resurrection is because we have consequences in our lives. We have chains that are all around us, and it's blinding us from being able to go do the things that God's calling us to do. But it's amazing the bondage that we find ourselves in. But here's what's so amazing to me. 
is we find ourselves in bondage so much so that we don't even know what we want and we don't even know how we got there. Here's a man, a rich man, then it was too late, says, you know what, if there was one thing I could do again, would you please send somebody to tell them that they don't have to go here? I don't want anybody else to experience what I'm experiencing. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, refers to all the things that you think you're chasing, that you really want. He calls it vanity or chasing the whirlwind. See, this question of what is it that you really want is a really big deal. Because here's what happens when you chase the things that only value you. Like, you know what I'm saying, like I was talking a minute ago about being a workaholic or talking about pornography and there's other things that I could talk about, whether it's sexual gratification or different things like that. Like there's certain things that you may have in your life and you better be real careful because whenever you are only consumed with your own wants and your own needs, there's a word that creeps into your life that changes everything because all of a sudden you lack empathy. See, you start devaluing all the people that matter the most to you because you overvalue yourself too much. The idea of idolatry is not that you put all these other things in your life and they become the number one thing in your life. The reality is, is your idolatry is worship of yourself. You need to live life not simply for yourself. You need to have wants and desires that are bigger than just affecting you. As you're answering this question, what is it I really want Jesus to do? It should affect more than just your life. It should change many people that are a part of your life. And I pray that in the process of being self-gratifying unintentionally, we call it the American dream, going and getting what you want, that you don't devalue all the other people out there and you lose the aspect of, of empathy for them and realize where they are. In fact, I'll give you a better understanding. Can I give you a little bit of history of why Dickinson wrote A Christmas Carol? See, in this time frame, he actually was gonna write a pamphlet. He was gonna write a pamphlet in the spring and he was going to send it to the British government. And here's what he was going to entitle the, 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 the pamphlet. Can you listen to this? This is cool. The pamphlet was going to be called An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Children. See, they had a major issue taking place during this industrial revolution and the things that were going on. And they were using children because they were from poor houses and they can pay them the least to do the labor. Charles Dickinson led the way in this story called A Christmas Carol to what you and I would end up calling child labor laws. And what he was trying to get people to understand is don't get so caught up in trying to go get what it is that you want that you use everybody around you for your own selfish gain. Don't be a user. If there was one thing that I believe we've got to get better at, 
It's seeing people the right way. Seeing their value. And not using people because of something that we want. But to want something more for people despite what we have to give. You say, well, Mickey, can you give me an example of that? Well, yeah. There was this, there's this amazing God called Yahweh. He created everything perfect. And despite being the ruler of everything, God, Yahweh, he said, I want a relationship with him so bad, I will do whatever I have to do to have a relationship. So I'm going to take the form of a baby, and I'm going to be born of a virgin, and I'm going to spend my first night in a water trough, and I'm going to have some people that come to celebrate me, but I'm going to live a 33-year life, and at the end of it, I'm going to put myself on a cross, though I didn't have to, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be rose for the day three days later so that no longer do they not have a relationship with me, but through me, we can have a relationship. See, we call that selfless love. The amazing thing about the Christmas story and this amazing concept of Christmas carol is that it all centers around this one character who shows up, Jacob Marley, who starts to sell, show Scrooge these concepts. And here's what I love about this story. is because he had just a little bit of empathy, he was able to love people again. And when he fell in love with people again, life changed. Can I ask you a question? When you gather around the Christmas tree and you start opening up gifts, is it a burden or is it an expression of love? Like the way you live your life and as we answer that question, what is it that we want Jesus to do? Does it change people's lives more than just your own? Like I believe love is the greatest of all of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, right? Now abide. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Like, I know this sounds crazy, but I love love. I love expressions of love. In fact, every year, every year we have a tradition at Crossroads that I do every year for one reason— because I want some of you guys to express to your significant other how much you love them. And you're going to get that again this year. You say, well, what is that? Mistletoe Sunday. Here's what it looks like at the Clark House. Pretty much for the next 24 hours, I have this thing on me all the time. Which means my wife is running from me for the next 24 hours. She may go stay with her parents. Because everybody knows what? If I catch you under the mistletoe, you have to give me a kiss. Could you imagine what it would look like if a group of people ran out into this community? And not with mistletoe to kiss somebody, because, man, that could get awkward in a hurry, right? 
Like, don't go, like some of y'all are going to the restaurant today, and you're like, man, that server, come here, hey, hey. My pastor told me to show you a little expression of love. Just tip her better. Just tip her. You don't have to kiss her. But what would it look like if when we answered the question, what do we want Jesus to do in my life? What if it had something to do with showing others a major expression of love? If you're encouraged by today's podcast and would like to hear more messages, visit us at crossroadscommunitychurch.com.